Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What I've been noticing and I've been practicing myself is that when a difficult situation arises or someone says something to me that I don't like, I slow down. I intentionally slow down. I feel whatever it is that's coming up. But then I give myself time to see, like, is this genuine? Is this just me being defensive? And what's the actual skillful way for me to deal with this moment so that I can create harmony in the situation or remove myself from it? Because oftentimes, I would say nine times out of 10, you don't need to accept someone else's invitation to be angry. Because other people would be like, here, join me in my anger. But you don't have to say yes. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a podcast for you to relax, drift off, and allow your mind to wander. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and researcher on a mission to share information that will help you live happier, healthier, and with more love, optimism, and wisdom. This podcast features interviews with well-known guests and world-leading experts about what it truly means to be human and what we can do to become the very best versions of ourselves. On today's Unwind, we are speaking to Diego Perez, who you may know as the viral social media poet, Young Pueblo. Diego is a three times over New York Times best-selling author, as his books, Inward, Clarity and Connection, and now Lighter, have transformed millions of readers' lives through his words, teachings and reflections. Diego elegantly weaves ancient wisdom with modern-day examples to support people on their journey of self-healing. It is with true delight and pleasure I welcome this magical man on the show today, someone whose words have comforted me in times of need and inspired me to go within, expand and grow. He reminds us that personal transformation is possible, it may not be easy, and it may look wildly different to what you expect, but that no one needs to feel alone on the journey. Would you mind sharing a passage of work of yours or someone else's that you return to often and maybe share why? Yes. So I'll read the passage first and then I'll mention who it is and and why it's so important to me. So it goes, have you also learned that secret from the river, that there is no such thing as time, that the river is everywhere at the same time, at the source and at the mouth, at the waterfall, at the ferry, at the current, in the ocean and in the mountains, everywhere and that the present only exists for it, not the shadow of the past, nor the shadow of the future. This is by Herman Hess in his book, Siddhartha. And that book for me is like one of the reasons why I started writing. And it's probably the book that I've read the most in my life. I think I've read it about like six or seven times. It is not only like a lyrical masterpiece, you know, he just takes prose to its highest level but it's full of wisdom and it really shows what the seeker's life is like and how important it is to make the search and experience of wisdom one of the most important parts of your life. 
I love the fluidity of that piece that you chose. And even just you saying the seeker's journey. Uh Do you find yourself going back to the same wisdom or do you find yourself constantly finding new nuggets and new realizations? Oh, I think it's a mix of both, really. Like, um, I think one of the most common pieces of wisdom that I am meditating on daily is impermanence, is the reality that everything is fundamentally changing constantly at every single level of existence, from the most minute, you know, the atomic level to the cellular, to the energetic, the mental, the physical, the cosmological, everything is constantly changing, constantly arising and passing. And this is a piece of wisdom that I keep learning more about, even though it seems like it's something simple on the superficial level, it seems straightforward, right? Everything is changing. But when you're able to embrace that truth deeper and deeper, it unlocks your freedom. And I feel like I wouldn't be able to have the little freedom that I do that I'm building inside of myself without that truth of impermanence. This is actually a part of the book in Lighter that is my favorite when you address change. And it really brought up a lot of questions as to why we fear change so much. Why do you think that we are terrified on many levels of change? I think it's because survival, right? The need for survival predisposes us to attachment. So we're sort of geared towards trying our best to survive, to get from today to tomorrow. That's why the ego is so predominant. The ego is helping us just figure out what do we need to get from here to there, but it doesn't care about our happiness. It doesn't care about our achievements and wisdom. And it makes it really difficult to accept the truth of change because change makes it so that security isn't always guaranteed. We may have these beautiful moments in our life, but then things, one and one, something else happens, or there's some sort of loss, or something is taken away, or some degree of change comes. So that sort of points you inward, because that means that we can't have our reality based on what's happening outside of us and trying to control the things outside of us. But instead, we should be doing our best to develop internal fortitude, because the change is going to happen whether or not we want it to or not. So we might as well do our best to build that inner peace. And I think the way you say difficult emotions feel permanent, and yet we fear the good emotions passing. I thought it was so delicate in how you bring that attention to the fact that you, when you're having a great time, you never want it to end. And yet when yeah. you're having a bad day, <laughs> you're like, this is never going to end. Right. And it's that struggle because I feel like our natural relationship with change is one that's aversive, that's full of, you know, we want to push it away. We don't, we want the things we don't like to never happen. And we want the things that we do like to always continue, but it limits our relationship with change. Because that's one thing I try to point out in the book is that the same way that we fear change, I actually think we should challenge ourselves to appreciate the fact that change, it allows us to exist. Like if you Mm. were to think about it in your imagination, if the universe were just static and nothing were moving, you and I would not be here right now. You and I would not be having this conversation. Your mom and dad would have never been born. You would have never been born. You would have never had all these opportunities to love, to even feel what loss and hurt feel like, to feel what gratitude is, to feel that giant spectrum of emotions and to gain wisdom all the way through. That wouldn't be possible without change in this realm that it creates for us. 
So when you say you meditate on impermanence to build a healthier relationship with change, what does that practically look like? Because I'm sure everyone listening can probably think that they've got some improvement to do when it comes to having a better relationship with change. Sure. Yeah. So I I meditate two times a day. I meditate an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. And I've been meditating now for about 10 years. And I meditate in the Esen Goenka tradition. It's a Vipassana style of tradition where you're essentially building insight by observing the truth of yourself in the universe within the framework of the body. And one of the truths that's very apparent when you turn your attention into the body is change, is that everything's changing. The primary object of meditation is change itself, but you feel it within the body. And that just opens you up to this wealth of knowledge about yourself and your life and about how the universe fundamentally works. You know, I kind of really owe everything to that practice because it, without it, I would be a total mess. You know, I was such a mess before that. And it's really helped me build inner harmony, inner stability. And like, I'm not a perfect person. I still have a long way to go to developing my peace and my freedom and my happiness, but who I was before is long gone. I'm sure many people listening would probably think I would benefit from this. Mm -hmm. What was your route to building in that habit? Because I'm sure there would have been a period of time where you knew it would benefit you, you knew it would help you, but just being able to stick with two hours a day, I mean, that is a huge commitment. It's a huge commitment, yes. The way I think about it is that it's a massive investment in myself. Mm. My incentive to put in that time is that life is better. Like I, I know how to live better after I meditate those two hours a day and it helps me process any difficult emotions that might be coming up either from the past or from that current day. And it helps me treat myself better, treat my wife better, treat my parents better, be more creative in my work, be more kind to the people that I randomly meet throughout the day. And um, it's just helped life align in a much more harmonic way. And And you don't start off with two hours a day, right? So. I learned by going to these silent 10-day meditation courses. And um, in this tradition, like to learn the technique of Vipassana, it takes time. So you go away for 10 days and you basically live like a monk for 10 days. And they teach you this meditation course. And it starts off with three days of learning this one practice called Anapana that is the natural awareness of respiration. And that helps calm and concentrate the mind. And the mind is able to get so much calmer and concentrated that you start to feel more in your body. And then they teach you that Vipassana technique that helps you start observing reality as it is through the framework of the body. And through that, you know, all of this really like this deep conditioning that we've been carrying through our lives. Like this is why mm-hmm. I call the book lighter because we carry so much heaviness from the past. Like we don't realize how so much of what we felt in the past, we've reacted to how we felt, but that accumulates in the mind and we carry that in these accumulations. They impact the way we see reality now and the way we react to it. We often react to reality, not by what's happening in that moment, but by how we felt about similar situations in the past. So oftentimes we're not really interacting with what is, we're reacting with whatever we're carrying from before. And this technique has just really sped up and made firm that deconditioning process so that I could actually do a better job of interacting with reality as it is, as opposed to how I used to see it. Just to pick up on something you've just said, and this relates to something that really resonated in Lighter, is when you talk about how our initial reaction to something is often not the gut reaction that we should be honoring, but actually knowing that the first reaction is usually the past 
speaking. Would you mind explaining that a bit further? Because I think that was a bit of an aha. Sure. Yeah, I think it's um, there's a bit of confusion because when so when I grew up, there were so many people who were, you know, they would pride themselves on saying I never change, or they would think that their authenticity is connected to their immediate impulse. Mm. And through observing myself and all of my friends who also observe themselves through meditation, they you can see that that first reaction, that's not you, that's your past. That's like this roaring of the past that has come up to defend you, to help you either jump into fight or flight or jump into action. But really, very often it's not needed and it's actually limiting your assessment of what's happening now and limiting your opportunities of how to deal with it. So what I've been noticing and I've been practicing myself is that when a difficult situation arises or someone says something to me that I don't like, I slow down. I intentionally slow down. I feel whatever it is that's coming up, but then I give myself time to see like, is this genuine? Is this just me being defensive? And what's the actual skillful way for me to deal with this moment so that I can create harmony in the situation or remove myself from it. Because oftentimes, I would say nine times out of 10, you don't need to accept someone else's invitation to be angry, right? Because other people would be like, here, join me in my anger. But you don't have to say yes. To go back to, you know, the way that you were brought up in those early environments of people being quite proud of these authentic reactions. I do think culturally we're taught to really have this big notion around gut feelings Uh and your book really challenges gut feelings. What do you think is the difference or how can we tell the difference between the past intuition and which one should we be following and how do we extract each feeling from each other? Right. That's a great question because there's a lot of information coming from within the body. And I can only speak from personal experience, right? So for me, I know my intuition doesn't care about me eating ice cream. It doesn't care about me like watching more reality TV. It's like those are cravings. Then cravings are often very much so at the mental level. It's like, I want more ice cream. I want more of this. I want more of that. So I know that's not intuition. For me, intuition often comes up as a calm persistence that signals me in a particular direction of my life. And mostly I've noticed, especially in the past 10 years or so, intuition has been something that challenges me to grow, especially when new eras or new chapters of your life are opening up. You know, sometimes it tells you to let go of something that's good for the chance at something better. Or sometimes it's telling you, hey, like you spent a lot of years in this city, you should go move somewhere else. Or Or, you know, you've been at this job for a while, but you know that you don't like it that much. Let's try to go out there and do something else or build your own business or figure something out that is much more aligned towards your growth. And I feel like intuition is more so pushing me slightly outside of my comfort zone so that I can grow. And even if I don't listen to it immediately, because I know my intuition was very strong about me writing, but I didn't pick up the pen and start intentionally writing until about a year and a half after I initially felt that. But it, it kept coming up every now and then. And that was like, okay, let me just gather the courage to actually follow through. And the same thing with moving from the city of Boston, where I grew up into New York City, that came up a number of times until everything kind of aligned for it actually to work. But your intuition is not your craving. I find that really reassuring, actually, to know that we don't need to respond instantly to our intuition, because yeah. if it's our intuition, it will keep coming back to tell us. 
Yep. If it's really important and vital to your life path, it'll keep coming up. And the window doesn't necessarily sound like a tight window for you to do something. And I think especially if it's a big move, like it takes time to gather courage, especially when I decided to jump into writing, like I was like, this is a bad plan. You know, like this is, this is <laughs> you know, you're, it's much more secure to just have a job and have a nine to five. But I was like, I'm scared to do this because it's very risky for myself and potentially for my family. I was actually going to ask you because after two huge successful books, I can imagine releasing a third brings up a whole different ball game of emotions. Did you feel nervous about a third having had two successes or what was your process with that? I felt a little more nervous than usual about this one because it carried so much of my personal story. Mm. And I was really enjoying just like sitting quietly in the background uh, <laughs> behind Young Pueblo, you know, like just being Diego Perez and nobody really knowing me at all. But then I have like these, you know, millions of followers. And but I was very much so able to just live a very private life. So putting my heart out there felt like it was a big challenge to step into my vulnerability. And especially Clarity and Connection, like Inward was successful, but it was successful over a three-year period. And Clarity and Connection was successful really fast. It was like, a, it had such a strong year and a half. And then for Lighter, I think about it as, as musicians. You know, musicians, mm. they put out a lot of albums. And they'll have a lot of albums, you know, that are great. So you want to maintain a certain caliber of like really doing your best and putting things out there that are genuine to you. So in my case, like something that's genuine to me is like something that connects with what I really believe is true, but is simultaneously useful for other people. But then at the same time, I don't know which one's going to be the most famous one or when I'm done writing, which one's going to be looked at as my most popular book. Like I have no idea. So to me, it's like, let me just take a swing at it and see what happens. I mean, that really speaks to how much you practice what you write. Because, you know, a big theme in the book is radical honesty. So I mm -hmm. felt like bringing that personal story in was courageously radically honest. Why is radical honesty such a critical theme for you in your healing journey? And why do you, do you want to share this concept in particular with other people to help them? Yeah, so I started the book with that concept. I feel like it's so important. This term radical honesty has existed for a while and the way I defined it for myself is being honest between you and yourself, like the honesty between you and yourself, not between you and other people. What I found was that I had gone through life basically avoiding my emotions because I had, you know, witnessed and experienced a lot of difficult things like growing up in the United States. My family and I, we emigrated from Ecuador. And when we were in the United States, we, we went through like a lot of really serious poverty and I saw the struggle that my mom and dad went through. You know, my mom, she would clean houses. My dad was working at a grocery store and we were stuck in the classic American poverty trap, struggling to pay rent, struggling to get food on the table. And that was jarring for me as a child because I saw the uncertainty. I saw the stress in my parents and I saw how it was, you know, just driving them mad. Like it was stressful for them. And thus for my, my brother and I, I think, it created a lot of insecurity, a lot of anxiety, um, especially for me, it created a lot of sadness. And I never had a process to deal with that. So when I got older, my way of dealing with it was running away from it. And that led me to this pretty like horrible rock bottom moment where 
I, you know, was just doing so many different drugs, partying constantly that it pushed my body to the edge. And when I was there, you know, literally on the floor in this rock bottom moment, I felt like my life was draining from me. I knew that the problem that got me there was me lying to myself. It was like I was literally lying to myself so much that it almost ended my life early. And I knew that for me to pull myself out of there, for me to make my mind lighter, I, it had to start with being radically honest with myself. And I don't think if you really love yourself, if you really want to heal yourself, like I think that's for most of us, that's where we begin. What is the difference between radical honesty and self-criticism? And how do you keep radical honesty something that's productive? Yeah, radical honesty is only radical honesty when it's combined with with self-acceptance. And self-acceptance has to be compassionate. It has mm. to be compassionate towards yourself. So self-criticism can go to such an extreme where it's just totally unhealthy and it's you picking away at yourself but not really doing much about it and there's no balance to it. Radical honesty, it's done through a process of self-love where you're being honest with yourself about the aspects of yourself that you do like. You're being honest with yourself about your own emotional history that you carry. You're being honest about also what qualities you're lacking that you need to cultivate so that you can live a life where you're actually reclaiming your power, where you're actually developing your peace, where you're building your wisdom. So it's a balance, you know, and that's why I like radical honesty as opposed to being critical about yourself because radical honesty, like it has to be done with that compassion and self-acceptance for it to really be real and for it to motivate you to embrace your evolution. Because I feel like our ego is very naughty in telling us <laughs> yes. that it's actually being the voice of honesty when actually it's not. No, it's very tricky. It's very insidious and, and we have to be on, on the lookout for it. Many of us are in those cold winter months and my latest secret to unwind and relax is Stove. Stove is the company that creates the best heated chair covers and cordless heated cushions to keep you warm and cozy sustainably with infrared heated technology. Stove is like a warm hug and it not only warms you up, it's environmentally friendly and saves you money. It's quite genius if I'm being honest. I've noticed that using my stove is far more efficient form of heating as it warms just me, making sure I'm always snug and comfortable instead of needing to heat my whole room, meaning I can turn my thermostat down those extra few degrees. Even as I chat to you right now, I'm cuddled up with my stove fluffy infrared blanket. So if you're interested in cozying up this cold season with a warm stove, just head to their website, uk.stove.com, and I'll put that in the show notes to see everything they have on offer. They have plenty of different colors and fabrics to suit your style. Also, very excitingly, I have 10% offer for you. Simply enter the code UNWIND at checkout. It's the perfect reason to unwind during this cold season. How is lying and fear connected? Oh, lying and fear, I feel like they both create distance, right? Like they create distance between you and yourself and between you and other people. I think being able to engage with fear in a healthy way where we're trying our best to recognize that it startles us, but at the same time not being dominated by it, to be still be able to live our lives. Because like there's always going to be pretty big challenges like life 
as far as I know, life doesn't get easier. Mm. But you yourself are able to build more wisdom so that you can deal with it more skillfully. Radical honesty in relationships, and this is something towards the end of the book that you address in terms of how do we heal in relationships and how do our relationships become healthier. This is a delicate and sensitive subject, right? In delivering radical honesty to those that you love. And I'm sure compassion will come into your answer in some way. But how do you advise people to navigate those very sensitive relationships when, especially if somebody else isn't on the same personal development path that you may be on, for example? I think first off, when we're considering holding someone accountable, we have to consider where is that coming from within us? Like, are we genuinely trying to help them Mm. or are we trying to penalize them? Are we Mm. trying to like bring them down in some way? Because this is what we were just talking about, like the ego is really insidious and sometimes people confuse justice for punishment and justice is not justice without love. And I think that, um, you know, when we talk about accountability, it really has to be for the collective good and for the individual good. And that doesn't mean punishment. It really means like uplifting. So think about like what, you know, what am I genuinely trying to do right now with this, with my friend, with my intimate partner, whatnot. And the other aspect of it, I think especially when there are moments of discord, moments of conflict, we really have to switch our mindset from victory to understanding. I think it's so, so important. That's really changed my relationship with my wife where the two of us were constantly trying to win in the past. And a lot of that, you know, the seeking of victory was often what you were saying. It was like us pointing the finger at each other and being like, you need to change this. You need to change that. And it never worked. It just wasn't successful. One of us would always leave a little more hurt than the other, but then neither of us were really reaching our happiest levels. So what we started doing was when conflict would come up, we would do our best to just practice listening to each other selflessly. And that really means like just calming myself down, calming down my narratives. And let me do my utmost to focus in and listen to her. Like, what is her perspective? Because I know my perspective, but perspective is a very tricky thing. It is inherently narrow. So I want to see how is all of this coming together from her angle. And when you're really able to understand someone, like Thich Nhat Hanh, the really famous monk, he says, Mm. understanding is love right? So when you're really able to understand someone, letting go happens, letting go naturally happens. And you're like, oh, like I see where you're coming from now. And now let me tell you what was going on with me. And if she's able to understand my perspective, when we both see each other, like really see each other, there's no more fight left to have. They're like, the fight's done. It's like, oh, I get you and I get you. And it's like, okay, let's do a better job next time understanding is love oh gosh it shivers it's so good I feel so many little thought bubbles have burst in my mind on the subject of love you write blind habit patterns get in the way of love it would be great to discuss what are blind habit patterns and Mm -hmm. how can we navigate these in a relationship especially yeah so blind habit patterns there they harken back to what we were just talking about in terms of the way you react to what you feel To reiterate that, when you're reacting really intensely to something, it makes an imprint on the subconscious of your mind, and this accumulates. So we're talking about from the moment that you were a baby, you're reacting to things, reacting to things, 
And over time, we develop patterns. Like some people will have this like strong pattern of reacting with anger. Other people will have a strong pattern of reacting with anxiety. Other people insecurity or whatnot. You'll find that you know you'll have your certain set of patterns, and within the incubator of a loving relationship, they're going to appear. And whenever there's proximity, whenever two human beings are in proximity, there's bound to be some conflict because we all carry an ego. And egos are rough. So if two egos are rubbing up against each other, they're going to create friction. So this is not a bad thing; it's a natural thing. And what, but what we should do is like, how do we process that when it does happen? And that's to basically have your own toolbox to support the recreation of harmony is really, really important. Something you really address and you redefine. Actually, I really appreciated the fact that you spent quite a lot of time in your book redefining what we mean by self-love, redefining what we mean by healing, because these words have been thrown around enormously, and in many ways, it's lost its meaning. Yeah. How did that process evolve for you? Like, how did you redefine it to something that you could get on board with? And have you ever lost interest in the version of? healing and self-love that sometimes were presented. Oh yeah, totally. So I started writing, I think it was like 2014, 2015, when I really started taking this project seriously. And I realized that social media was this giant forum where humanity is having a conversation with itself. And I remember during that 2014, 2016, 2017 era, self-love was a really big topic. And there were a lot of different people. And this was like self-love and wellness as a whole. They like appeared at the same time. They didn't really exist. But what I noticed was that if everyone, like everyone seemed to be putting out like their own ideas of self-love and the capitalist world was putting out its own self, you know, idea of self-love that was really driven by consumerism. So I was like, heck, if everyone's throwing in their two cents, let me throw in my two cents too. You know, if we're all defining it in different ways. So I was like, sure. I was like, now, and I just started sort of meditating on the subject and thinking about it. And to me, like real self-love, there's two things about it. It's real if not only is it activating this energy where you're deeply appreciating and accepting yourself for who you are and also acknowledging that there's room for you to grow, but at the same time, it's starting to open the door to unconditional love for all beings. So there's this dynamic where it's really not self-centered. It's really about you helping yourself. But at the same time, if you're helping yourself, if you're really starting to know yourself, then you're going to build compassion. Because when you start seeing all the trouble that you cause yourself in your own mind, you're going to look around yourself and you're going to be like, whoa, my mom and dad are doing the same thing. My brother and sister are doing the same thing. My neighbor's doing the same thing. And you're starting to have more compassion and more love for them because you know how hard it is to be a human being. And the other aspect of self-love is, to me, it feels like the energy that you use to heal and free yourself. Like once you really love yourself, you're like, okay, like I've come a long way. I've overcome a lot of things, but I really got to work on developing my presence. Like I really got to work on my compassion for others, you know, and for myself. There are these qualities that exist within us, but they're not quite strong. So we have to put energy into them to brighten up our life. I just love that point you shared, you know, when we start to really recognize on a daily basis how hard it is to be a human being. Yeah. We really reduce the pressure we put on other people. Uh-huh. It's tough out there. That's why the Buddha says that life is inherently dissatisfaction. 
like there's a lot of dissatisfaction that comes to living. And this also kind of lends itself to the subject of pleasure. And on the whole, all of us want to be experiencing pleasure, of course, obviously. Non-stop, yeah. (laughs) Non-stop, more than pain. And, you know, often when we think about addiction, we instantly think drugs, alcohol, it goes to that. But I think you delicately communicate in the book that actually our desire for pleasure is actually potentially inhibiting our growth. And that could be saying yes to too many parties or if we love work, we work too hard or... I'd love to kind of open up the discussion on that. Like, how can we become better acknowledging when we are engaging in pleasure to our detriment? Oh, man, you're asking that. That's like a really deep question. And I think that's, um, you know, for people who are really serious about their self-development work, I think this is an area that we have to really grapple with. Because if you really want to make a lot of progress in one life. It's really about walking a middle path. So there's nothing wrong with enjoying life and with, you know, enjoying your family and your friends and traveling or whatever it is that you enjoy. But if all you do is seek pleasure, then you're running away from something. Mm. There's like a particular feeling in the body that you're trying to cover up if you're constantly trying to create a situation where you are just feeling pleasure. And I'm talking about feeling pleasure on the bodily level because oftentimes we think that we're reacting to like, oh, this party is really fun right now. But what's actually happening is you're reacting to the sensation that this party is creating on your body. Fun itself has a feeling on the body. Anger has a feeling on the body. Envy, jealousy, like you can feel these things on the body. Fear itself, you know, all of these things, you can feel them in the body. So being able to recognize that it's not actually your thought that's bothering you, but it's the feeling. Because when a thought arises simultaneously, it arises with a sensation on the body. So being able to recognize that. But if you're becoming too attached to pleasure, then that's going to hinder your relationships as well. Can you imagine if you're with someone and you're constantly expecting it to be springtime in your relationship Mm. for both people to be constantly happy all the time? That's not really possible especially when it's two people who are open to growth. That means that there are going to be times when like a lot of stuff is coming up and you're dealing with your past or you're trying to like get over whatever trauma happened between you and your mom or or whatever it may be. So sometimes one partner will need a period of slowing down a little bit, a little bit more quiet so that they can overcome these difficult things from the past. So being attached to pleasure can absolutely become a massive hindrance. A really handy tool I picked up from your work, and I'd love to share that with the audience today, is how you encourage people to be more honest in in their relationships in the sense that acknowledging how they feel to the other person. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure, yeah. I think it's a really useful tool. And my wife and I, we sort of stumbled upon that through trial and error during the pandemic, especially (laughs) when it first started, because we were both together all the time, all of a sudden, we We loved it, but we realized that if we were going to be together more often, then we needed to be in communication more often. And what we kind of do now is we let each other know in the morning, like how we wake up, like how we feel when we wake up so that we each know. And let's say like I wake up and I feel short-tempered that day. If I let her know, then not only am I admitting it to myself, because oftentimes if we don't want to admit to ourselves that we don't feel good, we end up making a mess later on because we're trying our best to just like 
pretend that everything's okay, but really there's this little fire burning inside of you. And that fire is going to look for more kindling. It's going to look for more wood to just like keep blazing, you know? So we'll make sure to check in with each other like a few times during the day about where we are in our emotional spectrum or where, you know, if you're feeling down or if it passes. And also the way that we talk about it too, it's like, I don't say like I'm angry. I'll, I'll say like a lot of anger is coming up or a lot of anger is passing through where it's like something that's much more transient, right? It's here for an hour or two, but I don't know if it's going to be here all day. And I myself am not angry because then I don't have like ownership over it. Talking to each other in that manner and being really honest about it, I think it helps the both of us know to be gentle with ourselves and with each other when we're both feeling a bit hot that day. How I interpreted it too is it really helps someone not take responsibility for your emotion or make it mean something about them. If somebody is in a bad mood around you, I know being a sensitive person, I'll immediately go, oh God, what have I done wrong? Is it me? Yeah. And the, and the, the other end of that too is like, really when your mind is feeling any emotion, like it loves when someone joins you in that emotion. So if it's joy, you want other people to join you in your joy and your happiness. And if it's anger, you want other people to join you in your anger. And it'll even go as far as to jump into like illogical hoops. Like it'll just like jump into all this illogical thinking, trying to figure out like, how is this your fault? Even though you may have nothing to do with it. And uh, one of my favorite stories is like, I've done the same thing too. But my wife, one time it was so vivid where she was working in another room and I was working in the kitchen and she was working in the living room. And she comes in like three hours later and she was like, you know, I spent the last like two hours trying to figure out why this feeling is your fault. <laughs> and she was like <laughs> laughing because it was like, you know, it had nothing to do with me. And I think realizing that a lot of times like there and granted, there are definitely times where like I will make a mistake and I apologize for it or she makes a mistake and she apologizes. But I would say like 90 percent of the time. It's not either of our faults. It's just us moving through our own emotions. Really love that. What is a habit you've cultivated that, not meditation, but another one mm -hmm. that has had a profound impact on your health and happiness? Oh, that's a good one. I think I've realized that breakfast is really not good for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I stopped eating breakfast and now I, only, I generally try to only have two meals a day. It has made a world of a difference for my mental health because wow. my mind feels a lot lighter and obviously everybody's body is different so you have to figure out what's good for you but through a lot of trial and error I realized that less is a lot more for me and um, I'm feeling really good about that and also uh, running I just I love running it feels like it just like connects it's something in my spirit really well so I'll um, make sure to run like three or four times a week and whenever I stick to that like you know the running eating two times a day. And I meditate every day, no matter what, like I've been, you know, two hours a day, I've been doing that for about seven years. But when I have all three of those down, like I'm just optimally moving through life. What would you say has been one of the best decisions you've ever made looking back? And maybe at the time you didn't realize what an impactful decision you were making? It would have to be two things. I mean, the when I told my wife, so we met like a long time ago when she was 18 and I was 19. But when I told her, we were friends for about like two and a half, three months. When I told her that I had feelings for her, that felt like a really critical, like, 
moment in my life that's still reverberating outward. And I'm really happy I gathered the courage to do that because we're both from very, very different backgrounds. So us coming together didn't really make sense to either of us at the time. So it only started making sense when we, once we both started meditating where it was like, oh, like we both love meditating. This is the thing that brings us together. And the second thing would be taking that first Vipassana course in July of 2012, because I've done a bunch of courses since then, and I've been doing it a lot for the past 10 years, and, and it's been like critical, critical to my life. I have to say, I just got such romantic tingles. I feel like I've just watched a, a romantic film because it <laughs> is so nervous um, sharing intimate feelings with someone when you're not too sure what the reaction's going to be. Oh, the worst part was I told her I had feelings for her and then she didn't respond at all. She just, she told me I need time. Like I need time. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, I just need to be by myself. And then she texts me like three hours later. And the first thing she says to me is, what are you thinking long-term? And I was like, what? I was like, do you even like me? I was like, so confused. <laughs> and, and she was like so much more concerned because she didn't want to like ruin a friendship for some mm. short-term thing. She was like, mm. I want to know that you're serious. And I basically lied at that moment because I'm like a kid, like I have no idea. And I was like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> And it turns out like she basically locks me down for life. <laughs> oh, I love that. What an amazingly good decision you made. You opened this book actually talking about how we should be wary of trying to be normal. And I feel that you have, you know, even just the way you live your life, you've chosen abnormal routes, as you spoke yeah. about on this podcast, writing, that I would kind of just love to dive into this further, like, how would you encourage people to assess what normal conditioning potentially is taking them on the wrong path? And how do we stay individuals in a world that really likes to enforce normal on us? This may sound a little odd. I don't trust culture, like global culture, microcultures, macrocultures. Like, I respect them and I, I definitely want to respect our ancestors and our past, but I don't think everything needs to be repeated. And I don't think everything is coming from a wise place. I find that within myself and my own journey, like when I went to college, like my plan was to become an investment banker because, like, I come from a lot of poverty. So, I thought to myself, okay, what's the fastest way to get out of it? Okay, become an investment banker and make a bunch of money. That was what society fed to me. That's what the TV fed to me. That's what culture was like putting in my mind. And when I started meditating, I was like, oh, I don't want to do that at all. I want to write. So it took a lot for me to like sort of build a boundary between me and culture so that I could just figure out what is like a natural aspiration that's coming up. I think if you want to do something that's out of the ordinary, like do it because you don't know how many people you're going to help. I think for me, a guiding light is to be of service, like in whatever thing that I do, whatever thing that I create, may it be of service to other people. It's really, really good for your mental health and for your inner peace to be in service to other people in a balanced way. Understand not in the way that you're exhausting yourself, not in the way that you're getting nothing back, but in a balanced way where your self-love is helping you take care of yourself, but while you're simultaneously trying to make your local world or the global world a better place. Is this quite difficult to remain slightly separate from culture, given the fact that 
you are so viral on these social media platforms. Okay. Do you consciously not spend time on them? Yeah, I try to limit my time on them, but I also enjoy some of it. And I, so I let myself, you know, like I'll look around and, you know, find new music or, you know, connect with my friends through it or whatnot. But what I try to do is more so in terms of the things that popularity brings, right? So like popularity brings attention. And, you know, one thing I've made sure to do is like not move to Los Angeles. Right. I don't need to be there. You know, I get invited to a lot of things and like I even started getting invited to like movie premieres and stuff. Like I don't need to go to that. Like I don't, I'm not interested in walking the red carpet. Like, you know, yeah. and all of these type of things that um, are part of culture. But to me, it's like, I want to respect it. And I, I don't want to put down what other people like because mm. I respect that we, like this is my preference for me. And I think it's good that we all have different preferences. But at the same time, I don't want to live my life in a way where I'm trying to make my face popular. Like I'm totally fine with making the words popular, with making this body of work of Young Pueblo popular. But Diego, like I'm very happy to just live a simple life. I find that incredibly inspiring. What song has had a profound impact on your life? So this song is called A Rose in Spanish Harlem and it's by Nicholas Brittle. I do a lot of writing to music, especially sort of this like neoclassical wave of music. You know, a lot of different artists, artists like Nicholas Brittle and Hans Zimmer, like they make music to movies, but they will be like such beautiful music, so much harmony in it. And I've found that there are times that if I need a little more inspiration or if I'm trying to write a poem, the harmony of, of a song helps me create harmony in the poem. And yeah, it's really helpful. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? I think the importance of family. I've gotten really busy over the past two, three years, and I've spent a lot of time on the road and and whatnot, but I've been realizing that um, a new chapter is starting to open up, that I really want to spend a lot of time with my parents, with my wife's parents, with my brother and sister and her siblings. And they're like the most important people to me in my life. And my wife and I are talking about starting a family of our own. So I think taking care of, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen that map where it's you in the middle and then outside of that circle is your family, outside of that circle is your community, outside of that circle is like your, you know, the nation you live in and in the world. I think taking care of my most inner circles, which is myself and my family, I feel like it's really dawned on me how important it is. And how do you wind down before bed? Lately, it's been honestly a mixture of uh, reality TV. Uh, my wife and I really enjoy Survivor and the challenge, MTV's the challenge, and definitely sometimes a little bit of scrolling on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I love the juxtaposition. It's like poet meditator who also likes a little bit of TikTok and reality television. <laughs> Keeping it yeah, real. <laughs> yeah, definitely got to be honest, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has just been such a joyous and wonderful interview. I've enjoyed chatting to you so much. Um, I will put a link to your brilliant book, Lighter, in the show notes for everyone to grab a copy. It is the most epic bedtime reading, if I do say so myself. And of course, uh, links to your socials. So thank you so much. 
Thank you so much. And this has been a joyful conversation and I'm excited to share it with everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker, a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions, and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you, so do shoot me a message on Instagram, send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.